Hey folks, this is Trust the Process. My name is Travis Fritz. I'm a brewer in Williamson, Michigan at Old Nation Brewing Company. I've been doing this job for about 20 years and I'm using this opportunity to chat with folks who are involved in the industry here in Michigan and all over the country. Uh, perspectives on work, on philosophy toward work, and on the brewing industry specifically most of the time. So I'm glad to have everybody join us here today. Also joining us uh, here on the call is Adam Stout, um, along with uh, John Cole, who is also working at Old Nation Brewing Company. Adam, uh, I am excited to talk to you today, most primarily because I know you are a guy who's been doing this for a long time. You've done it in a couple of different places uh, in the U.S. and then a couple here in Michigan. Um, and I am excited to get into it with you. So I'll start. Um, by a little brief introduction, you're kind of born and raised in Colorado. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, born and raised in Colorado. Uh, you had an organic chemistry uh, master's in Colorado. Fortunately, yes. <laughs> Was that at Colorado State or or yeah, CSU State? and Fort okay. Collins? Yeah. Cool. Excellent. Um, and you did some work in the uh, in the medical field before this. Can you? Uh, biotech, do? just doing biotech research as a medicinal chemist for six years or so. Okay, and that was so phenomenally engrossing that you oh, decided that was, to be a brewer. That was that was so exciting. I needed a career change by the <laughs> end of it. So. Tell me a little bit about that. You, I mean, you started right out of college in that field, or um, no? I, I uh, did college. Didn't know what to do with a chemistry degree, so I went to graduate school. Uh, about six months into graduate school, I realized that uh, organic chemistry PhD track was not for me. Um, so I uh, got into the math. I just switched to the master side of it, which is everybody enters in the PhD track. So switching the master side is simple. Um, so got out of there, got into industry after that um, in Boulder and uh, did six years of the roller coaster of having to go on fundraising uh, runs every three months because the company is about to run out of money. Oh. So after after six years of that, it, it kind of burns you out. So and so it was it was the work around the work mostly. Yeah, yeah. There had been a few times in there too that I had kind of. I at one point I contacted Oscars um, and I got offered a job in their their QC department. And looking back on it, I should have taken that, but I turned it down at the time. So why'd you turn it down? Uh, uh, money, money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You make a lot in biotech. So <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. I guess that's why I, that's one of the reasons why I'm interested. Um, so what was the, I mean, what was the, the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back? Was it the move to Michigan or? Um, no, it was, I, we just had a major falling out at the company across okay. the board. Like our, our chemistry department was pretty nice, uh, close knit. And since we were generating all the IP for the company, we had a lot of say. And there was just kind of a big fallout between the people in charge and the chemistry group and it went downhill from there. So I I had some friends who were interested in opening a brewery and I somehow convinced them that I kind of knew what I was doing. Um, <laughs> so, so they gave me a shoestring budget and I built a Frankenbrew system and the uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Pizza Boy, Colorado. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he wrote a bunch of books and stuff too. But yeah, I, I read like everything he had, and I was like, oh, I can go buy used farm equipment and slap this together. And <laughs> the square dairy tanks. Oh right? yeah. Oh, I, I had I had all of it. We had the the square um, hot liquor tank, the square mash tun. Easy to clean. I, oh yeah, yeah. And I, <laughs> I had a. Uh, boil kettle that looks like i mean looking back at it, it looks like it should have been a bright tank um but electric elements and stuff in there so we had yeah. we had uh 420 pulled down electric into this thing <laughs> with water surrounding it was it was real exciting so with a great um, deal of labor and consternation you were able to kick out beer oh right? yeah yeah a great deal <laughs> so <laughs> So I always joke now, like you can give me any little piece of crap and I'll figure out a way to make something work. But yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, that's what, yeah, this was, uh, you, you get a coconut and cut a hole in the bottom and whatever, in four well, hours. Work. Coconut yeah. Beer. yeah. Something, I've not said a lot, obviously, but yeah, you can make beer out of anything. Pretty much. Yeah. But yeah. Then after, after that, uh, my wife, 
um, is a physician, but she got her, she was doing her fellowship and she um, was doing her fellowship at U of M after looking at lots of schools. I was like, San Diego is where I was, I was like, go to San Diego, go to San Diego. <laughs> but their programs not, U of M's like world renowned for endocrinology. Um, so we ended up here. She's an endocrinologist? Yeah. Oh, so she's a smarty pants type. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good. 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 So I, I ended up landing at uh, Roke as the lead brewer with uh, Brandon and Trace, um, okay. who were running that at the time, and then we all revolved out of there pretty readily. Um, and I ended up here at at Aberrant with uh, Clark, and it's been a a really good fit. So. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we, we don't know each other very well. We haven't, we haven't spoken much, but I, uh, you know, particularly a couple of years ago I was on social media a lot. And that was the vibe that I got from you. I mean, having been around brewers for 20 years and kind of understanding what subtext is when brewers mm -hmm. talk about their jobs and what it is that they do. Um, it did seem like you were one of the guys that, that, that seems really fulfilled at his gig. Do you, feel like that's i mean without talking out of school do you feel like that's more or less true there oh yeah yeah definitely here um i've i mean the market's the market out here um if if everything were up to me i'd be doing mixed fermentation all the time but nobody <laughs> buys mixed fermentation anymore anywhere as far as i can tell so that that market's dead but <laughs> um yeah no it's 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 good i've had a lot of time to really perfect my baby beers um, and just do the process as I want to do the process. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, tell me a little bit about that. You said your baby beers. I suppose that means those are the ones you make for yourself and I mean, to, to, go out to the pub and sell or whatever. Yeah. Uh, to a degree. Luckily there are two that actually sell reasonably well. But, um, and I mean, one of them, yeah, Jonathan's holding it up. Our cream ale. Um, yeah. That's, probably my original baby beer even though that's that was not my intent coming in um that was one of the when we started this place um i mean clark the great owner and that he knows what he doesn't know um so that's where i came in and yes i know that's a that's a thing that people don't realize until it's too late <laughs> most of the time well um, right <laughs> yeah so so i came in and i we had a lot of discussions revolving around okay what do we what do we want to focus on where do we want to take this all that kind of good stuff and um i mean he just had kind of a basic list of hey these are kind of the, the flagships i i want to focus on and i was like cool well did you have any idea of like exactly how you wanted to do it because i i mean i i used to be really hard pushing i'm gonna make it my way blah 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 yeah, um, I think we anymore. Are. It's like I want people to buy my product. So, right. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, but I think that's isn't I mean, that's kind of where you that's the headspace you really mature in. Right. Yeah. I mean, you build skill by kind of saying, you know, everybody's trying to keep me down. I'm going to do whatever it is that I want to do and nobody can stop me. But then you find that, you know, what stops you is not selling any beer and you've got to kind of rediscover. Yeah right? Uh, where it is that you are actually coming from and what is actually important to you. And once you've kind of made peace with the idea that maybe you've got to keep some of these ideas and passions in your pocket for a little while, um, I think you really, you lose the ego and you start to kind of, right? You start to really improve in ways that you wouldn't if you kept yeah. a punk about it, you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, you talked about uh, a flat, uh, so this is interesting to me because I've done this a bunch in my career. I know probably every brewer has, right? You get hired by somebody and the first thing you do is you go into the pub and you're like, okay, I mean, obviously you check and see how clean it is and how much work yeah. you have to do when you get hired. Um, but after that, um, what kind of beer are they making? What does the kind of, what does the point seem like to this brewer? Yeah. So is it like a restaurant and kind of like that? early 2000s late 90s vibe where it's i mean these still exist by the way where it's like oh, yeah. red, wheat light or cream or whatever and then what, what are the others pale ale maybe an ipa and some dark beer right yeah and that's it right it's it's like eight beers on tap and it's a restaurant yeah. and you're just a guy that's supporting the restaurant or is it you know are they trying to be funky are they really i think what for me it is like are they trying to reach 
beyond their grasp or not? And if they are, is there anything that I can do to help them get there? Yeah. Or is this just too ambitious? How did you feel yeah. about it when you went to Adrian? Um, Well, the ethos here, because I, I've, I always lumped that into the ethos of a, a company. Um, and Clark and me, I, I, I think we see pretty eye tied on it. Neither of us like drinking big beers. Um, the, the sessionable, quaffable, whatever you want to call it is a uh, high priority. Um, and I, I, I like to say I've got Colorado mentality when I come to this. Um, granted, this is like uh, mid 2010s mentality, so it's a little bit different now in Colorado, from what I understand. I'm I'm pre Weldworks, where you had to release a new beer every single yeah. week to well, get anybody. Pandemic like <laughs> all over now, man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, so to me, like growing up uh, with especially when I was in graduate school, I mean, uh, New Belgium at that time, you just walked over, uh, hopped in the, the pub and you got five free samples. Um, right. There was no lines, there was no waiting. You could go right. on a tour if you wanted to, but you didn't have to. Yeah. Um, and Odell's was pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Every, uh, even in Fort Collins at that time, I think there were, there were uh, six or seven breweries um then so like cooper smith's was the downtown brew pub with a fantastic amber ale and ping pong tables so i mean it was very balanced yeah um that's that's the term i like to use is everything was very balanced at the time you weren't swinging too hard any one direction i mean even the the west coast ipas and whatnot weren't like they are now um so well i mean they were so what time frame would this be that you're talking about now in Colorado? Um, this would be about, uh, see, I graduated college in 2006, I think. So it, it would have been about 2007 through 2012 would have been my foundational period, I think you could call it. So Sure. Well, um, I mean, so you touch on a couple of a uh, couple of things that I wanted to touch on anyway. So I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to I'm going to ask you about them. I think there there is. I would say during that time period, for sure, there was a huge difference between Colorado breweries and Michigan breweries. I think there yeah. is still a pretty big difference, right? Um, of course, we had the benefit of having Bells and Founders in Michigan. Um, and you all had the benefit of New Belgium and the list goes on and on. Yeah. Um, but Colorado is a more mature beer market. It just is. Oh, yeah. um, you know, the, the competition isn't necessarily, it doesn't seem to be more intense or less um full of camaraderie to whatever extent michigan's full of camaraderie but um it does seem to it just seems more mature i don't know how else to how would you explain it do you know what i mean um i i am not sure exactly what propagated it out there i mean as part of it was that we had like uh, boulder brewing company is one of the oldest breweries in the country um fort collins brewing company was one of the oldest in the country so you have you have a couple of breweries that came on board at the same time Sierra Nevada was like getting started. Um, so you've really got that kind of like homebrew driven crowd getting into it at the time. Um, in terms of jobs and per capita and stuff like that, Colorado is just like sky high. So you've got a lot of insanely smart people. Yeah. who like to brew in their garage around the same time. And then a few breweries pop open and it just, it just drove the bar sky high for what could survive out there. Right. So I, I think the the bar is just higher per se to survival. Um, and I think the same is true of California too. I mean, sure. so it, when you walk around and you're exploring, um, it's a pretty safe bet that you're random, new brewery that's just opened up is actually going to be producing maybe not amazing stuff, but it's probably not going to have flaws. So, um, so, so I, this, this makes sense to me. And I think, you know, one of the things that we see, and I mean, I, I'm not trying to make this all about lager, obviously, even though, I want yeah. it, but one <laughs> of the things I see in Colorado is obviously there are these successful, relatively successful, at least lager breweries out there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they beat us by, you know, four or five years. Yeah. That. Since, so, so there's an example. I think one of the, 
one of the things I really liked about the beer, the craft beer culture in the U.S. Um, in the early 2000s um, was that there were pretty distinct regional differences. And you could certainly chalk it up to, look, they're just a more mature market. They've had more successful breweries for, for longer. Or like in Colorado, most of the population is concentrated in pretty much one part of the state. And, uh, you know, so it's easy to have breweries pretty much right next door to each other on a lineup 25 or whatever that's like that's just that's a cultural difference right that's, <laughs> a lot of those things make um make colorado different from michigan yeah to me it seems and, and i'm not asking necessarily to come to be an expert on this i'm certainly not but it seems to me like um the consumer has been drinking craft beer for longer and yeah. so they kind of understand better what a good one is, what kind of a mediocre one is, what someone making one that doesn't know what they're doing tastes like. Um, and it reminds me a lot more, frankly, of Europe. I mean, I, I would say in a weird way, it's more evolved than, mm -hmm. uh, than Central Europe. But uh, so, for example, if you talk to a German, they'll be able to tell you which beer they like and why. Right. Mm -hmm. And they'll be able to tell you. And it's not, you know, well, because my dad drank Budweiser or whatever. It's, you know, I really like this because these are the characteristics that define it and make it appealing to me. But really that's about Pilsner. And and maybe if you get somebody who's way outside the box and doesn't live in Dusseldorf, it might be all beer, for example, or whatever. Yeah. It's pretty much Pilsner. Um, whereas in Colorado, you have people who are, they don't even necessarily take pride in it. They're just so steeped in the idea of these different disciplines and these different styles that they're not so much what kind of happened here in Michigan has been happening, you know, all around the country for a long time. You talked about Weldworks, which is a cool, awesome brewery. Um, but you get these kind of copycat breweries when those mm -hmm. breweries pop up. And then the culture kind of dilutes and changes and reorganizes and comes comes back together. And the last time I was in Colorado was like three years ago, maybe. And uh, that is what it felt like. Yeah. Felt like, man, this whole thing is reorganizing. They got these um, lager breweries, and that's great. But a lot of these guys are are doing these kind of stunt beers exclusively, and to varying degrees of uh, of, of success. Of yeah, it's it's <laughs> changed a lot. I mean, yeah. it's it's bizarre to me too. I think one of the the foundational things about Colorado was uh, goes back to state laws um, and okay. the self-distribution cap. I mean, New Belgium was allowed to build their entire company by themselves. They didn't have to bring in a distributor. 100%. Um, and you see that with Stone and uh, a lot of the West Coast uh, bigger ones were able to do that too. Whereas Michigan, um, I don't know the whole history of all the stuff out here, but I know about the time I came out here, it was pretty hampered. Yeah. Um, well, and that makes a huge difference when you're trying to start a small brewery because you, you give up a lot of control when you start signing over. So... You do. You do. Yeah. And that's that a is whole, a discussion for a whole podcast that we can absolutely series. do. Right? Yeah, I know. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a few days worth of discussion right there. But, but I think there but I think there are some kind of discrete, important things we can talk about, um, you know, within that. Yeah. Um, for example, in Colorado, our distributor is a brewer, right? We do. Yeah. The Crooked Stave is our distributor. Yeah. Um, so they get it, right? It, you're not, it's not the same as working with a straight up middleman. Right. Yeah. Um, they really do. Every distributor says they're brand builders and they understand how to do that. Um, what they mean is we will take your brand and, you know, sell it for parts. And, you know, if you make it through all that, then kudos to you. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas Crooked Save will be like, OK, what is it that you're actually trying to do here? You know what I mean? Like, where are you going with this? Um, which is, to your point, a, a wonderful thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even if it's not self-distributed, I suppose, you know, to have just that kind of empathy going back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but it's a big difference. So. Yeah. So in terms of the culture of brewers um, in Colorado and the culture of brewers here, and again, you came to Michigan around 2015, uh, I think it was. So, okay. yeah. Strong Guild in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, relatively... basically the foundation of the national guilds. Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> yeah. um, and a guild here in Michigan, which is, you know, strong in some respects and weak in other respects, like most guilds. Mm -hmm. um, 
you attend guild meetings and festivals and all that kind of stuff or have you kind yeah. of okay without putting you in an awkward position what <laughs> what do you think and you could just say i had no comment or whatever but what what do you think kind of are the differences in in brewer culture between the two states um in terms of brewer culture again you you go back to the maturity of the market um i think that's also reflected somewhat through the the uh way those operate i mean it, colorado had a lot of very high level uh discussions going on at their more basic festivals i mean you could go to great american beer fest before it turned into a shit show which, it is a shit show yeah yeah not not what it used to be um and and there were just like just great discussions happening yes all the time um yeah and even the homebrew culture back then i it, i mean i i started homebrewing when nobody knew what brewing a bag was right and now that's a, from what i understand that's what everybody does anymore yeah. um and it wasn't like we were like, oh, this is so cool. I'm making blah, blah, blah. It was, hey, how do I make this process better? There you um, go. So every everything, everything out there was very much like goal oriented on the back end of it too. You look uh, for the smartest, most experienced guy that will talk to you and talk to him until he walks away pretty much. Yeah. 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 And it, it was awesome. Like dry dock uh, brewing out there. I mean, they owned a a homebrew shop. So they were super open to anybody who wanted to come in and get knowledge. And, and granted again, I mean, this was the boom of craft breweries, the, like the peak of it. So I don't, I don't know how reflective that is of current culture out there, but at least when I, when I was getting into the industry side and whatnot, um, that's, you could go anywhere, talk to anybody. It was extremely collaborative um, and usually pretty high level. So so coming from Michigan and, you know, being the, you know, the, the, the son of a, of a machinist and, you know, pretty much just all tradesmen uh, of one sort or another uh, around me, I have noticed a shift away from what you're talking about, which to me sounds like what I came up in as a brewer mm -hmm. and also saw other tradesmen doing as, as a child um, and has moved into something that is more it's less maybe brewer focused and a little bit more kind of marketing and sales division <laughs> focused, right? Uh, what's Easy easiest there. to sell? Easy there. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. I'll, I'll say it to your face, <laughs> anybody else. Um, that what is easy, what's easiest to sell? I mean, I, I Lord knows yeah. I sell beer a lot too, and I have for decades, but um, you know, what's easiest to sell is what's novel, right? Mm -hmm. This is where, and if this word makes your skin crawl as much as it makes my skin crawl for the same reason, I apologize, but you don't hear brewers talk about innovating, right? You hear brewers talking about, you know, fucking around or interesting ideas or whatever. Um, but we're not like sitting around going, how can we innovate? You know what I mean? You hear marketing and salespeople and journalists and kind of industry people always talking about, well, if you're going to do this, you know, there needs to be innovation involved. And for them, innovation is last year they used kumquats and this year they're using kefir, <laughs> right? In, their, in yeah. their sour, in their kettle sour or whatever. And to a brewer, to me at least, that sounds like some bullshit, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do feel like kind of the overall craft culture, for me, in between about 20, I don't know, like 2009 maybe, uh, but certainly by 2011 until now or or just recently, um, that has been kind of the focus of brewing. And I've noticed that it's pulled, it's kind of pulled newer brewers. It's not cool to just sit around and drink beer with a guy that's way older than you and has done this for a mm -hmm. longer time and just ask him questions about how he cleans a 90 if he can't quite reach it, right? <laughs> um, or, or whatever. Um, which is a really important conversation for any brewer to have. And of yeah, course, yeah. Young brewers. Um, but it's more about like, you know, how do you guys, you know, like how, how do you guys, where do you get your raspberry puree from? Or yeah. Um, or so, how many sour gummy worms did it take to get the flavor into that? Yeah. And look, I mean, I'm not saying that stuff is not cool. Right. It just doesn't seem to bear. So you from know, a brewer's yeah. perspective, it doesn't seem so to be talking about yeah. it much. I think an interesting caveat of that, and you, 
I mean, you fall right into this. Um, is that uh, with New England IPAs um, specifically? So, those of us who have actually spent the time uh, to refine the process, figure it out, all that kind of stuff, um, we kind of understand that medium molecular weight uh, right. proteins right. is the key. Yes, um, exactly. Like if you don't have those, you don't have a hazy beer. Right. Um, but but I feel like we're a teeny tiny community that's actually given a shit enough to uh, dig through and and figure that kind of stuff out. When right. when honestly, you can you can just throw whatever New Zealand pop just hit the market into a beer, turn it out, right. and and probably move it within a couple of weeks. So oh, yeah, you know I think New England IPAs are a great uh, vehicle to talk about this with. You're right um is that you know we we get these questions a lot right like why don't you guys just do what treehouse or trillium does and just put out you know new just use new hops and just keep putting out beers um which is a totally valid question we would make a lot of money if we just did that right mm -hmm. it wouldn't be particularly difficult and you know it's something that we've considered frankly and yeah. we, we've done Really, what I'm talking about here is the difference between like a new IP, a New England IPA, and let's say Pilsner, right? Mm -hmm. um, once we had kind of nailed how to make one, uh, then you know the idea of using new hops just to make money and kind of you know take just take people's loot because they would. I don't know, man. Like it didn't seem that's not how I was raised making beers, right? Yeah that you nail a style and then that is your version of that style, right? Once you say you nailed it, everybody else likes it. Okay. But put it away. Yeah. What's the next thing? Or what am I going back to that? I had to stop when I had, when I was developing this new style, which yeah. of course was New England IPA. Um, but it's those styles, I guess that, um, that, that brewers keep coming back to that. It just itches at you. You're like, man, it was fucking good, but it wasn't quite what I wanted. Yeah. And so over the course of years or decades, you just keep coming back to these beers and just tweaking a little bit, right? Or, or just uh, making it the way that you did and figuring out whether it was you that was the problem, right? And how you were tasting it or the context you were drinking it in. Does that resonate with you at all? Yeah. So I, I've always kind of lumped this into new school brewers and old school brewers and age has nothing to do with it um, and the way I do it. But um, I, I mean, like I said, in Colorado, it was all old school. Uh, you were about the process. You were about refinement. Uh, you were about perfection. And right. it was exactly that. You would you would keep making the same thing over and over and over and just little incremental changes here and there to right. until you finally got it dialed into exactly how you wanted it and locked it. Right. And then it was and then you move on to the, the next one that you need to dial in. And you just keep, it's an iterative process to get it to exactly where you want it. And I, I've always called that kind of the old school traditional style. Um, yeah, and right. and you can talk to people and like within their first sentence of talking about beer, you can kind of figure out which school they're going to fall into. And the new right. school is very exploratory. But I, I feel like we're running out of things to explore. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah. it, the yeast world is really interesting, but unfortunately, it's it's really hard to sell a consumer on the yeast world. Uh, they, <laughs> they, I mean, I, I use Philly sour for our sours in house, and it's uh, Lacanacea, which is uh, traditionally harvested from bees, right. and I think that's phenomenal and cool, and, yeah. and but nobody cares. It, 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 what's what's more important is the amount and type of fruit that I added into it during fermentation. So, right, right, um, right. The the boundary areas, the boundary pushing. Um, I don't know. It's it's yeah. almost like the American market has pushed it so far that now the the off the wall crazy idea is to go back to a light beer and make it really good <laughs> yeah, we're so, starting to so. see that i mean i'm, I'm yeah. seeing that out there um you know when i was helping you guys out getting an idea of, of how to get into distribution for a small town brewery um you know i was shocked how approachable people were to your cream ale about mm -hmm. how much that that came around um you know selling lighter beers for a previous brewery i've worked for you know was always difficult and, and over the last couple of years i mean travis now i'm out there with your fritz lager and you know people aren't blinking an eye they're like yes 
give it to me. Where before they go, mm, how much more than Coors Light is it? Well, you know, I mean, John, that question is gone. Yeah, you know that I, you know, um, from 2005 mm -hmm. until 2014, um, I did make a beer with the Sanders Chocolate Company, but outside of that, we were doing all lagers. Yeah. Um, out of, I mean, when I say all lagers, we were doing like two and around. Right. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but, um, You're but, making a house and an alt beer, and yeah. Right. Then we were trying to, do, well, right. We were doing an, a lagered ale and then yeah. a, and then a pilsner. Yeah. Um, but what we were, uh, what we were, you know, what I was trying to do was. You know, I've really believed in this beer. I spent years and tons of, you know, my own money and my partner's money and all this kind of stuff just trying to turn people onto this beer. And it was, I mean, I had to go in as the brewer into these bars or wherever and, you know, have a bottle out and be like, all right, this is a sample bottle. Try it. This, the all beer, for example, this beats the Killians you have on tap. Drink that beer. And if it doesn't drink, if it doesn't beat Killians, you don't have to buy it. I'll walk away and I won't come back. Right. Um, and that is the way that it was done back then. But even back then, and we're talking about, you know, still kind of the earlier um, development of the craft beer industry here in Michigan, where people were more receptive to that stuff. It was like, man, this is craft beer. So anybody that comes in here not for craft beer is not going to drink it. And anybody who comes in here for craft beer is not going to want it because it's not crazy. And, and back in that time here in Michigan, at least, uh, let's say 2006, 2007, it was the it was the bitterness race and the ABV race, right? Mm -hmm. How bitter, how many IBUs um, and uh, and how high in alcohol content could it be? Yeah, it's totally um, it's been interesting watching that. I started running my first craft focused bar when I was 20 years old, um, you know, in um, 2001 uh, in northern Michigan, where no one north of I don't know, maybe Traverse City had a couple of crafty bars in 2001. I mean, you had North Peak there. You had a few, you had some things going on, right? Yeah, um, but, you know, and, it, and really for the first 15 years of my craft beer experience from a bar manager into selling beer, um, nobody wanted a cream ale or a lager from a Michigan brewery because, you know, that's not the crowd they're going for. If you, if you were a craft beer drinker, you wanted the furthest possible thing from a European or American lager. That's not what you wanted. You didn't seek it. Yeah. Um, and then you're right. We went through the IBU phase. And then after the IBU phase, we went through the how high of alcohol could we put in it phase. And then we went through the how much barrel character could we get phase. Um, now you've got in Michigan, I feel, you know, I'm 41 now. Uh, Travis, you're right around there. Um, yeah. And as we start getting a little bit older, man, you know, I can't sit down and drink three two hearted because it's just too heavy. It's too heavy for me now. And so I feel like the mature market that came up in my age group, who's now in their 40s, who is now like realizing I need more drinkability. I need more from my beer than just high alcohol and bitterness. I need, you know, that next step. And it's finally getting there. I mean, that, that article from um, the free press that we were mentioned in is fabulous. And it hit a lot of nails on the head. Like people are coming back and maturing as a market and realizing that there is just amount of, as much nuance in a European style Pilsner than there is an American style IPA. And that's been well, a wonderful I, change in the last couple of years. Yeah. I'm glad you said drinkability because I've always loved that term. I mean, you can poo-poo on Coors as much as you want for introducing that as marketing uh, back <laughs> in the day, but uh, it's valid. Yeah. It is a valid characteristic. And yeah. if you don't if you don't have drinkability in your beer, like you're not going to sell it. It's just <laughs> well, go that's, anywhere. that's right. And I mean, you know, the, people shit on big brewers all the time. All right. In craft beer, and it's ridiculous, right? Yeah, they are doing exactly what they mean to do, and they are doing it to a degree of accuracy that ninety-five percent of craft brewers don't even know exists. Yeah. Right? Um, now, do I like it? No, I don't like it. Do I think it's silly that Coors, for example, the only thing I'd shit on them for is putting the color-changing mountains on the bottle? <laughs> if I grab for a bottle, I, I pretty much can figure out whether it's cold or not. You know? <laughs> it's, in my, it's in my hand. That's just conditioning the world to realize that the colder their beer is, the less of the uh, taste of corn syrup you'll taste. That's well, but again, I mean, you know, look, we made New England IPA and we told everybody it has to be cold and it has to be fresh. But how different is that really? Right. right? Um, I mean, it is different and for different reasons and we feel much more noble. But ultimately, 
again, I, I think, and, and we don't need to get into this now, but I, I think the, the level of precision required to make those beers, Coors is a little bit of a different animal because they're all doing it in one place, right, from one water source. But if you talk about Anheuser-Busch and they've got, what, 12 or 13 different breweries all over the country with all completely different water sources and staff and some mishmash of equipment, although it's relatively, I mean, that's a huge yeah. taking. It's a huge well, even even Coors, that's not necessarily true because they got sued for the banquet beer because they weren't brewing that in Golden. Um, oh, yeah, they were brewing it on the east. I don't remember where they were based out of. It was on the east coast somewhere, but uh, someone sued them because it wasn't brewed with Rocky Mountain water. Oh. Um, <laughs> and so now they can only brew that out of their their Golden uh, facility. But but it's a huge yeah. brewery. I mean, wasn't, isn't it, it like the biggest single brewery or was for a long time the biggest single brewery? Oh, yeah. It, yeah. We won't, even, we won't even talk about what they did to the water in that river. I actually, that's a gigantic <laughs> Superfund site. That gorgeous part of the United States is, uh, is, is, part, is largely ruined, um, yeah. which is terrible. Yeah. Um, but we don't do that. And that's why we're great, right? In craft, yeah. we're not big enough to hurt the environment. Um, but We've I, got I, KPIs. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, you know, I think when we talk about, and this kind of is just turning back into the conversation we had about Colorado and the development of the consumer's palette and all that kind of stuff. I think it's possible that that's happening in Michigan. I'm not sure that it is yet. Um, and I'm not sure that it ever will, frankly, because a lot of the culture here in Michigan, I mean, I hope it does and I think it will. Um, but a lot of the culture here in Michigan was built you know, it seems to me like Colorado pretty much had the 90s. And and although there were breweries like Bell's, which started in 1984, I mean, I remember in 1999 at a college party getting Solson, which is now Oberon, mm-hmm. and going, oh, this is a thing. There's a brewery here in Michigan. I mean, it, it wasn't anything like even Odell's was in Colorado. Mm-hmm. In the 90s. Um, so really, if Michigan's craft beer culture, with some exceptions, um, you know, kind of started in the very late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and it really geared toward the kind of beer that Larry was making. And then this legend about founders, wherever they were trying to do whatever their distributors told them to do. And they were about to close down and they decided to make a shift and brew what they wanted to make. And now comes Dirty Bastard or, or Centennial, which are great beers. Um, and, and so sort of that was the ethic of, of, of Michigan brewers. And then Shorts came around in 2006, 2007, and it just became this. You know, like how are we going to break out squares? Kind of idea, you know. Yeah. Um, and 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 Shorts is another brewery like Weldworks that I you know I really respect those guys. I'm friends with them. I think they do interesting and super cool stuff that I don't do. Um, but I think here in Michigan it became again more of and I, and I think quite early uh, distributors and salespeople and kind of industry people got they saw what shorts was doing, right? Well, they're coming out yeah. with a new beer every two weeks and it's crazy. And some people like it and some people don't, but it's, it's like this long form performance art. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, uh, that, that shorts well, not, do. not to mention their uh, just brilliant advertising that they have behind it. I oh, mean, their social media arm is, is incredible. Yeah. Yes. So. Truly. Truly. Um, and, and just, I mean, from Scott and Joe and the way they work together and their brewing staff and the leadership that's there and the community. I mean, it's a, it's what people should strive to make a brewery like that, no matter what kind of beer they're making without question. But what it ended up making was a bunch of people that were like lawyers or engineers or whatever. And they were like, okay, well I can do that shit. You know, if these hippies can do it, I can do it too. And then you could just get this huge mass of breweries that kind of have very little focus and they don't really understand the industry and they don't, there's a lot they don't understand. It's not like they have to be part of an old culture or anything. It's just these kind of fundamental things where it's like anybody you talk to, you're like, man, you can do whatever you want. You can be a rock star. You can make any kind of beer you want. But here are these fundamental things that you really need to learn. I say this a lot um, and I say it to, you know, new guys that are coming up uh, through our system here in Williamston. um, Because what was told to me as an apprentice was uh, by these crusty old German guys who were not you know, rock and roll cool guys like, you know, American craft brewers are supposed to be. They were conservative. They just weren't plumbers. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, what they always said was your first job as a brewer is to not give anyone a hangover they didn't earn. Right. 
Um, and so your first job as, and that encompasses a ton, right? If you have 10,000 hours to mastery, that might be your first 5,000, right? Um, because it's how you ferment, what kind of raw materials you select, what your process is, I mean, how your yeast health is ultimately, what mm -hmm. controlling pH and all that stuff throughout the process just to get to that starting point. And then after that, man, go do whatever you want, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and I think that that is a good point when you talk about shorts is they inspired a lot of small brewers and upstarts to, oh, we need to make a new beer every three weeks. We have to right. always have something new. We have to always push the boundaries. We have to... And, and what they don't understand is Joe had a many, many years of brewing expertise and technique work before ever opening shorts. He worked with some great people here in the state of Michigan. He had a, a, a proper education upbringing um, of brewing here. And he wasn't just some guy thinking of weird ideas and slapping it in a beer. They had those things, right? Sure. But then they would sit down and say, okay, what's the process to make the base of this beer the best it can be before we start messing around with adding spruce tips and start yeah. messing around with adding grapefruit wedges? Right. Uh, and know, some of those ideas are going to work and some of them aren't, but the, mm -hmm. but the, the, the fundamental pr principles of brewing were covered within them, right? right? Brewing's deceptively easy. And I think that's kind yes. of a uh an issue especially in a first world country with lots of money and free time generally for people to do it in their garage um but the to get a consistent product is actually way 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 more complicated and so i've, I've always pushed like if you don't understand yeast and you don't understand water you are not going to be able to do this like right. it, those those are the most absolute fundamental aspects of it and right. At a, at get, a, right at a technical theoretical level and also at a kind of an intimate sensorical level yeah i mean god your your beer is 99 water practically well not necessarily 95 yeah. 99 would be pretty shitty beer for getting drunk <laughs> on but um yeah so you've got mostly water in there and your yeast is giving you most of your flavor uh if you can't control those two then how are you going to do this in a consistent way so, yeah yeah yeah, you're right. Well, and I mean, I think, um, you know, when we talk about what well, what we're really talking about here is you said, you know, it's deceptively simple to make beer. And, and I agree. Um, I would maybe go to a different level of nuance and say it's deceptively simple to ferment a grain based. That, beverage, yes, right? that's a better. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even grains. It's right. deceptively simple to ferment something that has sugar in sugar. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Throw yeast at it and it'll do its job to yeah. degrees of success. You don't even need to throw yeast at it. You just stick it out in the right. rain yeah. you'll pick up something. Yeah, so. you just, take the, just skim the scum off every now and yeah. then. Just a couple of things I wanted to talk about um, and, and do justice to, uh, you know, your your employers, Adam, is to, uh, you know, obviously bring up Aberrant Ales in, in Howell. And um, you guys have been there since 2017. Um, I had the pleasure of helping out over this last uh, summer um, just with basically some consulting and, and having a great time hanging out with you and Clark. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a it's a beautiful little place in downtown Howell. If you haven't been downtown Howell, um, it's actually had a lot of growth over the last few years. And Aberyn, I think, is one of those spaces. Um, it's a it's an absolutely gorgeous facility there, um, which is which is great. Um, the cream ale, which is I'm drinking right now, is kind of. Um, was was really honestly i've been selling beer for 11 years in the market and um i am excited to say that this beer helped me um uh, realize over the last couple of years that people are ready for these styles of beer they're ready for the light drinkable um nuanced lager s beers obviously cream is nail um which which is great um i just saw you guys started launching some cans so that's cool at the brewery and we'll make sure we give you a shout out for that um, your, your can designs are, uh, are whimsical and I kind of like them. You got Daisy D and the boys, you know, and then, in the cream ale with the Wu-Tang inspired label. So, you know, you guys liked your, uh, your hip hop and your street art, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, pretty cool. just want to make sure I gave a shout out to those before we get uh, too carried away out there. Um, but, uh, how's that canning process going? You've been enjoying having that at your, 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 um, <laughs> Oh, canning. That's not something brewers enjoy. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Canning's a blessing and a curse. Right? Um, I will say it's better than running the Maheen. You want to talk about foundational skills. If you haven't run a Maheen, then you don't have the foundational skills yet. So. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. You got <laughs> yeah. to know what you're trying to do in order to use a Mahine well, and even then it sucks. 
Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so well, you got like a cask filler? A little, what do you got? Uh, no, we've got um, a micro canner. Uh, yeah, out of they're based in West Michigan somewhere, okay. but um, yeah, it's been it's been nice. It's it's a much more simplified design compared to some of the other ones I was looking at. Um, so it, but to me, that means you can fix it when something goes wrong. Uh, so it's been, it's been a lot easier than I expected it to be initially. Um, so at, I mean, at, when I was at Roke, we had a Maheen for a while and then we brought in, a uh, it's a Czech company. I can't remember what we had, but it was a 28 rotary filler, 28 head rotary. Cause they still thought glass was like popular. Yep. Um, and, um, yeah, so those were fun. Um, and the canning line by comparison is like pretty smooth. So. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, we were talking about, you know, whether eating a shit sandwich or shit soup is better, I suppose. Yeah. Point, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's part of the deal, right? You have to learn it and you have to, you have uh, to yeah. master it and, Starting, you know, I, I started on, uh, you know, huge, you know, fillers that I wasn't even able to go down and work on mm -hmm. um, as an apprentice or touch really at all. Um, and just operating them and, and, and then doing analysis afterwards. Uh, and from there immediately to uh, 19, this is no bullshit, a 1930s juice filler <laughs> with a labeler. And again, I shit you not from the 20s. Yeah, this was in the early 2000s. Love it. Um, and it was so that you know, like the the labeler, you couldn't get too close to it. You certainly couldn't work on it while it was operating. It would absolutely eat your fingers. Um, same thing with the filler, right? There was nothing, no thought to safety, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but beyond that, the principles were largely the same as they are now, right? These machines just are safer and they go faster and they're more efficient. Yeah, um, yeah, but that I think is what we're talking about when we talk about Mahines and, and all that kind of stuff. Is the, the principle right? The point you're supposed to get to is the same in any of these fillers, yeah. Right? Um, it's just how much the machine helps you or hinders you from getting there <laughs> is what you have to learn. Um, and, and one of the things I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, and this is something that, that John had brought up on his uh, on his, his initial document here, was um, your perspective on the differences uh, between you know, kind of a community-based brewery where most of the sales are happening out of the, um, out of the pub to a distributing brewery. And what's interesting to me about that is not necessarily the nuts and bolts of it, although I'm happy to talk to you about that if you want, but more the, 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 the kind of baked in difference in intent that you have to have as a brewer uh, between the two. And I wonder if that makes sense to you. And if it does, would you, would you speak on it for a minute? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think what you're getting at is kind of the, the more localized focus gives you a bit more flexibility on, on what you want to do, what you want to put in cans um, and on like how much of the market you're satisfying. Um, right as well uh and the larger you get uh and as that ratio of sales swings from taproom to distribution um you've got more like forethought and planning and scalability issues and and uh stuff like that i mean bringing on contract brewing to help fulfill some of the demand and opening markets and complying with the laws of shipping across state lines and <laughs> all the licensing that goes into labeling and all that fun stuff. So there's, there's, they're different worlds. They're yeah. just completely different worlds. They function differently. I mean, you're hopefully you're brewing as nuts and bolts of brewing is the same between them. It's just a size different. Um, sure. But in terms of the way that that whole sales machinery and movement machinery and logistics and employment and all that kind of stuff. That's a very big difference between the two. So it is Travis. This is why I told you why I really enjoyed, you know, meeting these guys and getting involved with them because I feel like they've got a great head on their shoulders between, you know, Adam and, and their ownership and, and they understand, you know, what it's going to take to get to that next level. And it's kind of a crapshoot sometimes, whether you will or not get to that next level, even with the best laid plans, but at least understanding the fundamentals of what it takes to go from where they are now to where they want to be right. is someplace that a lot of places do not have a firm grasp on. Well, right. And I, I mean, I think, you know, um, 
risk tolerance is a big part. <laughs> <laughs> By risk tolerance, you mean how much money do you want to yeah. front load? <laughs> yeah. People, you know, I don't, I don't gamble at all. And people have asked me a lot, like, well, why don't you? I mean, it's not like I have something against it. I just, I don't, I can't, right? And uh, well, why don't you? You know, why don't you play poker or whatever? And it's like, dude, I, I gamble every day. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like this is a huge, each contract signed. <laughs> right. This is a huge undertaking that is all risk, right? Any yeah. decision that you make is risk. And anything can be, you know, completely this is one of the things that I'm talking about with the difference between, in my experience, pub brewing and, and production brewing is <clears throat> the way that people think and talk about beer now um, has changed pretty fundamentally. Um <clears throat> With, you know, untapped and, and rate beer and beer advocate and, you know, God bless. We do fine on all of those and it's wonderful. But, um, you know, I I mean, I do it now, but I, I remember, you know, when I started out, the way that you sold beer was by standing behind the bar or sitting at the bar and talking to people about the beer if they wish to talk to you about that. Yeah. Right? Um, and if they were interested, then you could continue to chew their ear off about all the shit you had to do to, to get it to where it is in the glass that they're drinking. And, 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 you know, there would be a little bit more of a, a one-to-one, maybe intimate's the wrong word, but I, I'm not sure that it is relationship between them and what they were drinking mm-hmm. through that. Right. Um, and now, and, and by the way, these were folks who had largely learned what they knew about craft beer from, you know, Michael Jackson and, yeah. Papazian. I'm talking about the beer writer Michael Jackson and Charlie Papazian, and uh, and and uh, Fred. What was his name? Eckhart. Um, I think. Yeah. Listen to your beer. That was Fred Eckhart. I think. Yeah. Um, and, and and all this stuff, right? So they were sort of saying, okay, well, this brewer brewed this style, and by the strictures of the style, it is passable or not. And then the extra layer was, and I like it more than other examples of this style or less, right? which I thought was a functional and relatively nuanced way to, to taste beer. Um, and I think right at the same time, and maybe for the same reason that brewers started doing this kind of keep it, you know, keep it fresh, keep it uh, sort of novel uh, approach to brewing and, and kicking out beers all the time was right around when people shifted from that kind of perspective to this idea of getting online and just drinking a beer and, you know, hot take on this beer is this, and it's there forever. And, you know, that's what it is. Um, And so the way that they tasted them became kind of confined to whatever vocabulary these folks had to talk about beer. Right. Yeah. Um, So does this beer taste like grapefruits? This beer hella tastes like grapefruits. You know what I mean? It's great. And it's 8%. I love it. Five bottle caps, right? Um, not, you know, I like the way that the brewer entered in with the malt and kind of, you know, is, is supporting that, but not overriding it with bitterness. I mean, all of these kind of more nuanced perspectives didn't get lost. There's still people doing that, but it became way less of the, the, the thought leader here. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's so nice to be able to drink a beer with someone or, or talk to them while they're drinking beer and talk about why you did what you did, right? I know that this is a little bitter, for example, but I want it to be a little bit bitter because I know that that will reel you into the to the beer. Yeah. Whatever. Um. So without going down a rabbit hole about talking about you know beer advocate and untapped and all this kind of stuff, um, which what, to plug a future episode, we will have Joseph Tucker, the founder of Rate Beer, on in a future episode. So uh, Adam, if you want to, you know, eat him up. There he is. <laughs> Can you get everybody to hop on at once and we'll all just like hammer yeah. it to death? Hey, Thanks a lot, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I'm actually super excited to talk to that guy. Yeah. I'm not even planning on super anything, excited. but just kind of figuring out yeah. his perspective on the same thing that I'm asking you about, which yeah. is. Um, How does that factor into everything? I mean, pub to production, right? Yeah. Does that, it doesn't hurt. When I was at a pub, these websites existed, right? Um, and they were to one degree or another influential, but they weren't particularly important to me because you're sitting here at the bar and drinking the beer and I'm talking to you. Right. Yeah. When I'm selling beer to Greece, right. <laughs> or Denmark, uh, or, you know, Colorado or Kentucky or wherever I, I, I could, I don't, none of that is under my control. Right. 
so this whole thing becomes about storytelling essentially mm-hmm. it's sort of a narrative and and you know this is you know well why is this new england ipa better than another england new england ipa it's like well i i don't know why we have to tell you but this is why right um and uh and that's really much 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 more complicated than i gave it credit oh yeah yeah that brings in a whole new aspect of marketing that wasn't there before right yeah it's 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 a different different world um i when you say uh like rate beer versus uh untapped even those two i find to be completely different animals because at least rate beer had some guidelines to how yes. you assign yeah. scores to it. Right. Untapped, well. yeah. untapped could be such a amazingly useful tool right. if they would only normalize the yeah. data. And I've, yes. I don't know how many times I've sent them emails, like asking them, hey, can you guys like, so within the cream ale category, I love this category because I think we have like a 3.4 or 3.5 in that. Yeah, um, right. But if you pull cream ales across the spectrum, they all fall into that range. Um, So for a cream ale, that is actually like really good according to untapped ratings. Yeah, that's my favorite thing is like 1.5 stars. This is a really good lager. I don't like lagers. Yeah. So if they they would just go through and kind of enforce some kind of normalization on the data, um, I think A, you would see not everything lumping into the same numbers that it always falls into. And B, I think it might actually be probably not terribly representative, but maybe a little bit more representative to the the accounts and stuff that are actually factoring that into their decisions. Because yes. I agree, I it's a frustrating thing when an account will factor that more heavily than the uh, salesperson who's willing to stand there and drink it with you and kind of tell you the story about it. Um, but it happens, and I understand why. It's a whole lot easier to hold it up on the internet and make a decision based on that than well, and it's, it's the other way. That there's some some objective democracy happening happening there right i mean these are people who bought the beer and put it down their neck yeah this is what they think about it right yeah Um, i've had that discussion with buyers where they've said you know this only gets a 3.6 rating on this kolsch like okay but google american kolsch into this thing and see the other top like 20 of them and the highest rating one is a 3.75 and ours is a 3.68 well, and again, right. so yes, it's one of the best ones. Right. That, that's about these sites rising to preeminence at the same time that this new thought yeah. process about yeah. a brewing or this natural evolution of American craft brewing happened. Um, and I think this is normal in a lot of uh, emergent kind of, I, I don't, art is maybe a little highfalutin, but like emerging art forms where there there has to be a period of exploration, right? I mean, craft beer was inevitable because of the pressure put on the American, particularly American drinker, by the hegemony of these big lager brewers, right? Like, I mean, I couldn't now probably tell you the difference between Bud Light and Miller Light if you put it in front of me, right? I don't fucking, I, who knows? And I think that was just, again, it was this pressure building and building and building. And finally, it was just like, fuck this. And it was all these different beers. And we had this first wave of brewers, as you said, kind of get uh, used to things that were from somewhere else and trying to master these different styles. And then once that kind of ran its course, of course, this kind of exploration is going to be the, the next thing. Um, yeah. and, and they won't go away. There's a time and a place for all of that. Um, but what beer means culturally and how beer is used and all of that stuff, I think, are the questions we're entering into now. And it'll be fascinating to see how that turns out. Yeah. Um, I think... Um, we covered just about everything that, that we wanted to talk about well, here. I got one more thing. Oh, I would be remiss with Adam's background as an actually classically trained violin player uh-huh. to not talk about the free press quote that you gave and oh. play a little video I prepared. <laughs> the, <laughs> Travis was quoted recently in the free press article about the rise of craft lagers as saying the difference between American craft beer and central European lager is the difference between punk music and classical music. You can do both really well and both represent a real emotional range for people. But with classical music, if something goes wrong, one little thing, it ruins everything. In a punk band, you can drop your guitar and still keep going. And then our good friend Shane here at Old Nation had made a suggestion. And, uh, you know, I made it come to life, Travis. So here it is.
I was on pins and needles. <laughs> out whether you're gonna let that leak all over your table. That's what I was thinking about most. You need you needed a jackboot to just kick it at the end there, right? Just to kick it across the room. <laughs> Boom. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's you know I, th that makes sense, right? I guess. Um, that yeah, I mean, it totally, especially with loggers. Uh, I mean, loggers. I think there's a misconception with loggers that people think they're the oldest style blah 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 oh, no. and actually when you look at the history of science and brewing lagers are still relatively new um but they do in terms of the refinement which i think you can lump classical music into hard hey uh, classical music and jazz probably same yeah, are, are, and jazz may actually be even more so the just pure mental process of of what you were doing um so i guess actually I might say loggers fall into the jazz category. They're a newer, a newer invention, but totally uh, rooted within the the history and the theory of everything that came before it. Um, well, yeah, I, so I, right because I mean, Western theory is really the theory that was used in the 18th century by European white. Yes, yeah. right? and jazz is just coming with a broader base of theory ultimately. Right? Yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> so there's just more to know in order to. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but you, absolutely. I, I would say, I would say that, I, I would say that you're right. Um, and I, and I think, you know, like this is, this is what kind of this podcast is for, for me, right. Is just to make a record of what this was when it kind of started. Right. Yeah. Um, and where we all came from as, you know, guys, I've been doing this for two decades now. Um, this year marks it for me um, in September. That'll be 20 years of not being in school and supporting myself doing this job, uh, my family and the people around me and those people that I employ. And so um, after 20 years, I thought it would be a good idea to, to have these conversations if for no other reason than to have a record of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we used to mean it, everybody. Um, but I think I think people mean it now. And I think a lot of the conversations we're going to have moving forward uh, in this podcast, and I think among the brewing community generally, um, are going to be about how a lot of the things we're bemoaning as lost aren't really lost. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm 42. I'm not going anywhere for another 15 years at least. You're going to, you know, still be kicking around making beer in 15 years probably. I mean, it's still here. So the question then is how to take these, I think from what a modern perspective look like, really stodgy opinions about brewing um, and, and how those weave then into, uh, you know, what these third and fourth wave guys are doing, um, and how do we make it meaningful and how do we make it not look like a cash grab and how do we make it not look like gaming the system with untapped and, and, and kind of playing the averages and, 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 and gambling in that way. Uh, but making it something that is clear that we are doing it with intent. Uh, we're doing it with heart. We mean it. We've spent our entire lives doing mm -hmm. this. And, and we, you know, we, we have tried to be experts in order to do this for people in the best way possible. Yep. And that's uh, why I'm glad to have spoken to you today, Adam. Is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to get to? Not from my end. I think, I think we hit on pretty much everything. We, we got to shake our fist and yell at the clouds, so. Yeah, it's <laughs> uh, you know, all about, buddy. Thank you Good. so much for being our first guest, Adam. It was a, a pleasure interacting with you. Um, you obviously are less than two miles from my house. You're not rid of me just because I'm not in there every day poking you. So yeah. um, you'll you'll see me down there. And um, and and one more time for Aberrant Ales and Howell, please make sure if you haven't been in there, go check them out. Absolutely. Um, they they have a wonderful chef in and culinary team down there. Uh, chef Brett and his team. Um, if you haven't been in since he's come and revamped that menu, the food's incredible. Travis, do you like hot chicken sandwiches? I like some of the hot chicken sandwiches that I have had. Oh, you have got to go have <laughs> Chef Brett's hot chicken sandwich. It's my favorite. Is it that unnatural, wonderfully unnatural red color? Um, like no, well, crimson. It's because he uses actual peppers. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> sold it. Sold it. Super good, well super done. tasty, and of course you can find Travis and I in Williamston, Old Nation, pretty much any day of the week. All right, Adam Benny, it has been fantastic. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. And, yeah, thanks for hosting. This was yeah, good. Of course, man. And uh, well, I imagine we'll probably have you back at some point if you're willing. Sounds awesome. All yeah, right, I'm, I'm down whenever. So. 
Awesome. Thanks again. Appreciate Cheers. It. All right, later. To get different perspectives on work, on philosophy toward work, and on the brewing industry specifically. If, if everything were up to me, I'd be doing mixed fermentation all the time. Right, you would you would keep making the same thing over and over and over and just little incremental changes here and there to until you finally got it dialed into exactly how you wanted it and locked it. Right. We kind of understand that medium molecular weight uh, right. proteins right. is the key. Yes, um, exactly. Your first job as a brewer is to not give anyone a hangover they didn't earn.